This is Travel Wise, the travel podcast for growth-hungry entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore travel, continuous learning, and the psychology of flow. Ready for takeoff? Ask me why. Welcome, everybody, to 52 Living Ideas. Sadly, we are almost at the end of our exploration of this book right here, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. But we are not quite done yet. So just a few little points of housekeeping before we get started. Our next meeting is scheduled for two weeks from today, which I realized earlier today is going to be Black Friday. But Maritza and I decided we're just going to try to keep it on that day and hopefully a bunch of you will still be able to make it not be totally exhausted from turkeys <laughs> and shopping and be able to join in y'all need to sit down and relax and have some positive thinking after all the shopping mm-hmm. it'll be perfect but then we're talking maybe we will try to do at some point in december just a last finale celebration recap meeting just to have an opportunity for everyone to absorb everything we've gotten from the book and share what we've learned, what our biggest takeaways have been, how to use the book. And then we're also talking about going ahead into next year in January, keeping this conversation going. I think there's several different books we could still explore in terms of flow and positive psychology broadly. So I think we have a bunch of options and That'll be another thing for us to start discussing soon is maybe what book we'd like to tackle next. But let's get started with our presentation for today. So if anybody is new here, just so you know the format of what we're going to do, we do have a little slideshow presentation just to go over what we've covered beforehand. So if you've not read the book before, that's fine. We're going to do just a quick recap of where we are in the book, some important highlights from the chapter. Maritza also even has a very special presentation about the themes that we're exploring today. Then we are going to go into breakout rooms, put you into small groups so you have an opportunity to discuss some of the ideas that we've been talking about today. And then we'll bring everybody back into the main room so you can come with your best question, your biggest takeaway perhaps from the small breakout rooms. And we will be wrapping this up at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Let's get into then just our slideshow, just our quick recap. If you're not yet familiar with the concept of flow, flow is defined as that optimal state of consciousness where you both feel your best and perform your best. It's the state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. Your sense of self disappears, time passes strangely, action and awareness seem to merge. You might also know this state as being in the zone or runner's high. These are just other terms. In the pocket, I've heard uh, comedians use that phrase, I guess, to, to talk about what it's like to be in a flow state. And then we'll just briefly go over again this great graph of what flow is all about. Flow is that sweet spot between challenges and skills. So if the challenges are 
too high, you have anxiety, frustration, fear of failure. If your skills don't match the challenges, you know, it could be too low and you end up in boredom, routine, loss of interest. But what we want is that sweet spot where your challenges match your skills. And I think the most important part of this graph that I know Maritza and I are always pointing out is that it really is and ideally ought to be this upward moving graph that you at all times ought to be learning and growing and developing new skills, which allow you to take on new challenges. And it just has this upward momentum of growth to it. Let's just do a quick recap of our previous chapters. Chapter one, we revisited the concept of happiness. In chapter two, we explored consciousness with a focus on the importance of attention. In chapter three, we broke down the components of the flow state, things that go into flow. So talking about having clear goals, immediate feedback, that balance between challenges and skills, the experience of action and awareness seeming to merge. There's no distractions, no worry of failure. As I said, your sense of self seems to disappear. Time passes strangely and you experience the event as a positive end in itself. In chapter four, we talked about the conditions of the flow state. Chapter five got us into the body in flow, which led then into chapter six, which is all about the flow of thought. In chapter seven, we talked about work as flow. We, we talked about how work and relationships make up the majority of our time, our interest, our attention, and ought to be areas where we ought to be finding flow. So chapter seven was about work as flow. Last time we met in chapter eight, we were talking about flow in solitude and also flow in our relationships. And that now brings us up to the penultimate second to last chapter here, chapter nine, which is called Cheating Chaos. And just a couple great quotes to get us started here. MC asks us, how is it possible that people are able to achieve harmony of mind and grow in complexity even when the worst imaginable things happen to them? How does it come about that the same blow will destroy one person while another will transform it into inner order. And I think what he's pointing out to us here is that tragedy is inevitable in human life, but ideally we ought to be able to still find the flow and transform these experiences into something that can help us grow. That, that's the goal that we're gonna be looking for as we're thinking about confronting the chaos of life. So we started even by talking about transforming tragedies. And he mentions to us here, a person who knows how to find flow from life is able to enjoy even situations that seem to allow only despair. And then he had several examples of people who faced adversity 
many of these examples even came from people who went through awful physical accidents, experienced disabilities, but were able to find purpose and meaning and transform their lives in positive ways in spite of the tragedy. I'll share, when I, I was reading this, this always reminds me, one of the most powerful videos that I've ever seen that is now available for free on YouTube is old video footage from the 1970s of Viktor Frankl, who Snow, the, the psychologist of Man's Search for Meaning, who was the Holocaust survivor. And it turned out later in life, he actually worked with paraplegics and other people who were paralyzed and went through these kinds of horrendous experiences that left them in many ways physically incapacitated. And he shared a lot of the same kinds of stories of how people, you know, even in the midst of this kind of unimaginable tragedy and loss of capacity were not only able to survive, but to thrive. We're able to turn this into opportunities to add purpose and meaning that their life had never had before and achieve a level of enjoyment in spite of the tragedy. And hopefully that's an inspiration for all of us. Do you wanna talk about any of the examples here, Maritza? I just wanted to point out that these are actual people and every one of them, what they were speaking to was when they were asked how they coped with new life. Because for them, life as it existed had ended. And so the fascinating thing here is, you know, these, these different things that you hear them say, they're so much bigger than the small answer of, well, you know, I managed, you know, I, I, I did A, B, or C, like these are like almost transcendental concepts that had to, um, you know, happen within them for them to be able to move forward. So um, yeah, that's, that's all I wanted to point out there. Thanks. Then we also got into the idea of coping with stress. I think you could obviously see tragedies as an extreme form of stress. And perhaps even if none of us have dealt with any of these life-altering, horrendous kinds of tragedies, being human means that we go through stress. And here we're talking about developing a coping ability, as he says here, or a coping style. And as he points out here, two main responses to stress are mature defense, which would be transformational coping, or immature defense, which he considers regressive coping. He points out that few people rely on only one or the other strategy exclusively. It is more likely that we would first employ regressive coping and then move on to transformational coping. And I believe that is the goal, what we want to strive to be able to achieve. And as he says, the ability to take misfortune and make something good come out of it is, he calls it here, a gift. But as I think we're going to explore more than a gift, it really is a skill that you can learn and develop, hopefully maybe with baby steps when you're facing minor stresses, so that if and when life does throw you a more major example of stress or tragedy, you have that ability to be resilient. Absolutely. I love that you stated that, that it's a skill because I agree a thousand percent 
Um, and I, I don't believe that we spend enough time thinking of that. And that in and of itself is the wrong mindset. You know, if we have the, oh, well, I'm just not one of those people. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later on in our presentation. But I love that, it's definitely a skill. So then in the chapter, we talk more about the idea of chaos and this idea of how to make order out of chaos and how we do this kind of both mentally and you know, even when we're dealing with the physical environment as well. And I love the quote here at the top that the integrity of the self depends on the ability to take neutral or destructive events and turn them into positive ones. And as he points out here, all life on earth is ultimately made possible by dissipative structures that capture chaos and shape it into a more complex order. And I think this is just extending what we've been talking about all along, that what flow is about is bringing order to consciousness so that we have a stronger, more complex sense of self and more enjoyment in the moment and in our lives as a whole. And one other point here that I want to talk about that he points out that transformational coping is vital in our developing of positive strategies and in using them to at least neutralize negative events and possibly even use them as challenges that will help make the self stronger and more complex. And I think then this takes us back into that graph that we keep talking about all the time about the challenge skills balance that ideally when we're faced with these awful events that we can be able to turn them into challenges that you know, inspire and motivate us to develop our skills so that we meet the challenge and then continue on that path of growth. For me, this in this section, it was so striking, this small little sentence here that says, if a trauma is severe enough, a person may lose the capacity to concentrate on necessary goals. And then they say, if that happens, the self is no longer in control. And it's kind of like, I knew that, that if we're in trauma, we're not in control. The self is not in control, but to see it in black and white is kind of striking. And it does give you pause for how we approach those types of events in our lives. And it takes us to the next piece in this section. And here he offered a three-step kind of process that can help us, as he puts it, transform a stressful situation into a more useful, controllable state. And this would be what transformational coping is all about. So the first step here, he calls it unselfconscious self-assurance. He says, shift the focus away from how the situation might affect you. Remember that the world is indifferent about you and that it is not out to help or harm you. Things happen because they happen and that includes bad situations. I see this as just not taking it personally, which leads to step number two, which is focus attention on the world, focus on processing information from the situation and environment so that you can find essentially solutions that will help you to change the situation or at least perhaps change your response to the situation. 
And then that leads to the third step, which is all about discovering new solutions. As he says, you can either change the state of the situation to meet your goals or change your goals to leverage the situation. And then he points out here that the importance of just being open to the changes, knowing that change is inevitable in life and being open to the new possibilities. Marisa, did you want to add anything on Yes, sorry, things? I was yeah. no, it's okay. doing a little bit of housekeeping here. Um, so the, these, these three rules, I really think that what they're basically telling us is a friendly reminder about position open and um, re remaining kind of light in our feet in times of, you know, hard times as it were. And then we concluded this chapter with uh, another examination and essentially a summary of this concept of the autotelic self, which you perhaps could see is one of the goals of what we're trying to develop with flow, to develop an autotelic self where you have that experience when you're in flow. What flow feels like is that the, the experience feels like an end in itself as you want that complex self that has that ability to experience that autotelic self. And I, I do love the, the quote that we have here at the top that says, it does not matter where one starts, whether one chooses goals first, develops skills, cultivates the ability to concentrate or gets rid of self-consciousness. One can start anywhere because once the flow experience is in motion, the other elements will be much easier to attain. And then getting into this idea of the autotelic self, um, as he puts out here, an individual with an autotelic personality has relatively few goals that do not originate from within the self. For this person, the primary goals emerge from experience evaluated in consciousness, which is therefore from the self. And then he points out that the autotelic self is one that easily translates potential threats into enjoyable challenges in order to maintain that sense of harmony. So again, I, I want to point out that I, I love this, this first point that in the flow experience, there's lots of entry points into the flow experience, whichever one of these you might want to focus on first. And whichever one you focus on first, it can help make the others easier to attain. But then the ultimate goal of this is to have your values and your goals be something that comes from this complex self that you have generated. And that gives you that sense of control and order over your experience. Apologies. Um, I'm going to move on to the next. Sorry. And then next, we just had some some rules for how to 
develop your autotelic self. And, and again, you know, the, these are the, the same ideas that we've been seeing come up again and again throughout this book. In many ways, I, I feel this chapter really is a cashing in on everything that we've been reading so far and then how to take all of these ideas and apply them to perhaps some of the most difficult situations we might face in life. So as he points out here, you know, how to develop an autotelic self, it's about setting goals, you know, finding the, those activities where you can become fully immersed in the activity. It's about being in the moment, paying attention to what is happening, learning to enjoy the immediate experience that you're having. I like this these four rules because they tie in so nicely with so many of the other concepts we've spoken about in this chapter. You know, at the very beginning, you know, we say that setting goals is kind of at the very heart of any ability to enter into flow. You know, that's how you do it with intention. So that's kind of what I see here with these, these four things is these are the names we're given to the intentionality we're using for developing our ability to be autotelic. Oh, and we're here. Yep. I feel like we and sped through the first ones. Okay, so this section here, um, give me just one second here. This is Maritza has a special presentation extending on some of the ideas in the chapter and taking yes. them even further to how we can apply these to our actual lives. And I'll share, I think this is incredibly relevant. All of us, for example, have had to live through COVID over the past year and a half, which is definitely a curveball, if maybe even a tragedy in your life. So I think all of this is particularly relevant for us in this moment in time. Right, I agree entirely. And that's kind of what came to mind to me when reading this chapter. And he touched upon a little, and in, in the chapter, he speaks about our, the reverence that we give to people who we see, who have, you know, figured out how to surpass some um, crises or cows, and that we call them, you know, survivors or resilient or courageous. And he touches upon it briefly. And so it kind of got me thinking that we needed to give a little bit more attention to that statement. Like, what makes someone a survivor? And when I was thinking about it more, because, you know, it's the, so a phrase that was near and dear to me was that surviving is not living. And I was like, well, wait a minute. In that sentence, surviving doesn't have the lovely connotation that has been given to it from this book. So then I did a little more digging and I came up with the fact that there's yet another face. So at the very beginning, someone who, and just for the purpose of the next four slides you're gonna see, when we say victim, specifically what we're talking about here is a victimization. Something has been done onto you. It does not define you. And it does not mean that that is a permanent role. So you have been victimized. And as such, you find yourself in the role of victim. You don't have to stay there. In fact, there's, no, there's zero requirements for you to stay there. 
and it's not healthy to do so. So when we use victim, we're meaning someone who has been victimized or someone who has taken upon themselves the mantle of approaching life as though they have been victimized. That's what we're saying there. But that's only the that's only one step. And then we're saying there's a couple more steps, you know. The surviving is when you're moving out of victimization. And then as you get stronger and you're surviving, you slide into thriving. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Thriving. I just picture a lovely, happy looking tree, but that's just me. I might be a little biased there. So I'm going to read this for you because it's just setting the tone here. So I have a quote here by Maya Angelou. I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. And that's the key here, guys, because the entire point of this book is that whatever you are doing in life, find the path that improves you, not reduces you. Thriving, I'm sorry, oops, take two. Surviving and thriving are transformational coping in action. There are many factors of either prevailing or perishing in a crisis, some of which are in our control and others that are not. One of the most powerful factors that are 100% in our control is the survival mindset. The opposite of the survival mindset is victim mentality, i.e. what is happening? Why is this happening to me? This is often the initial reaction to a traumatic event. So having these thoughts, there's nothing wrong with you for having them. Let's put that out there. This is natural to have these thoughts. The danger of this mindset is that if sustained, it leads away from survival. Therefore, the person becomes paralyzed by fear and cannot react in a way that will help them towards safety. As with any skill, survival mindset needs to be developed over time. And the reason I'm putting, I've put these slides together is because I really don't believe that the survival mindset is that rare or that it is within the ownership of a few. One way to understand the healing journey is to think of growing from a place of victimization to survival and ultimately to thriving. While a person has had no choice about being victimized, he or she does have a choice about growing through these stages. So that part, that piece is within every one of our controls. We can choose to just keep looking forward and keep on walking. If you fall, it's okay. Drag yourself a little bit, get up when you can. This here, these are different descriptors for these three steps that we'll find ourselves in. And this is kind of like an iterative process. It's not a one and done. It's not like once you find yourself a thriver, there is no guarantee here no gold stars. It's not like once you're thriving, you're bulletproof and you're never going to fall back towards um, victimhood. Hopefully not, right? It's hopefully not, but it is possible that you may find yourself again, but then you just walk your paces again. These are just a couple different things. I'm not going to read these all out here, but um, I just wanted to give you guys the contrast. And if we all pause for a minute and kind of look at them, you can we have all seen ourselves in each one of these 
um, blocks. And the important thing to get from this again is that in so much as any of us can be normal, these are all normal states of being. There's nothing wrong with any of us for finding ourselves in either of these blocks. There's no pre-specified length of time for which we may find ourselves in any of these. It's just moving through the process, the movement. If you're standing still, you are not making progress. And the thing also to point out about these is you can see how if you're feeling out of control or you're overwhelmed or you're indulging in some self-pity, it's really hard for you to enter into a flow state. Because remember, we've defined flow state as being the state where you lose track of time, where you're fully immersed in the now. So if you're too busy, you know, kind of looking back, avoiding or preoccupied with the past, you are not able to just go with the flow as it were. Um, and so interestingly enough, and one, one thing to point out here too, is that looking to the future is also not really an aspect of being in the flow state. This one is where you would be when you're in the flow state. But I think that it's movement, why you would get from here to there. I'll just point out really quickly. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we continue. I think one of the important things about this is even having the words and having this model in your head can help you, I believe, move through these stages. The ability to identify to yourself, you know, where am I in this process? Am I victim, survivor, thriver? And then it's interesting because the flow process really is, I think, this, this combination of the survivor, thriver place, because Maritza's right, that flow is when you are fully immersed in the present, but from what we know about that upward trajectory about the flow state, there is a flow cycle, and really in many senses, it's a flow spiral, because you've always got to be you know, seeking out new challenges or and or developing new skills, so you kind of always want to be on the lookout for you know, in that future mindset and mentality for how you can develop your skills or give yourself new challenges if that's what it is so that you can have that continual growth aspect. And that's what allows you to come back to being in the present and then, you know, going back toward the future. Absolutely. I do agree. And yes, it's, it, this also is an iterative process. You mm -hmm. know, we're human beings, we're full of flaws and contradictions, mm -hmm. and it's kind of what makes us up. So any one of us, may have several points in our life where we get stuck in any one of these blocks. And we, we may keep going back to each of them. It's like, it's, it's an iterative thing. There's no just one. It's not like once you've arrived, you're arrived and you're done. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing a, a quick question here about, um, are there people who are 100% of the time in the thriver mode? I personally believe the answer to that is no. We're gonna get back to that question. I'm gonna bring it up again and, and I, cause I'd love to hear what some others takes on that is. So this is not my graph. I grabbed this graph from, ooh, I forgot to run my space. So from Professor Peter Klo, 
Professor Kloch and his colleagues developed this model and they have been working to get a mental toughness taught at the elementary and high school level. It's something they've been working on. So they agree with some of um, MC's statements and they actually do quote him. And so they believe that the path towards this um, survivor mentality or thriving mindset is through exercising one's mental toughness and developing it further. So the, the, these are the steps that they believe we have to go through and look into within ourselves. And the belief here is just like what we were reading in the chapter. When you tackle with intention, small crises that one finds oneself in, we build up the tolerance and the ability to be better able to handle the larger crises or the ones that are like world shattering from our perspective. I like this here, resilience plus positivity. And I, I'm of a mind that this is that transformational coping that we were just learned about a couple slides ago. This is from whence it stems. This here is something I put together specifically with the flow channel in mind. People with survivor mindset or thriving mindset, I think going forward, I'm gonna start using the thriving mindset instead because it just sounds so much lovelier. So these type of people, and you are these type of people, just to make it clear, every one of you, every one of us, make use of the chaos and fear and don't allow themselves to be ruled by it. They use the chaos to focus on survival. Here are six intentional steps that we can practice to become mentally prepared, emotionally, and oops, I forgot to, I don't know what I did there, apologies guys. So emotionally and mentally prepared for emotional and psychological stress that we may encounter in times of crisis. This shows to you the way I view it in my little brain here. I view it as forward movement and I view them as steps. And you kind of walk up the steps and you may fall down steps. You might skip a step. You might skip back down a step, but this is the path we're walking and there's steps. So they don't disappear. Step one doesn't disappear because you hopped up to step two. And it doesn't mean that you can't fall back down to step one. But in the same token, step six doesn't go away just because you found yourself lingering at two for way too long. So this is kind of the way I envision it. And so I tried to take it out of my brain and throw it on the paper for you. This is how I view us moving from victimization to surviving, to thriving. It's not linear. It's not a one and done. 
every one of us has this within us. If we find ourselves at a moment or a point and we don't think we do, it's just a matter of shifting our perspective. And I use the word just, and I don't mean to belittle people's struggles. I don't know what your struggles are, but I know with absolute certainty that every one of you, every one of us has at one point been on every one of these steps. So that's um, what I have there. I just wanted to uh, spend a little more time spelling out this um, concept of thriving as a, another path towards that flow state. Thank you guys. I appreciate giving me the- Is it, do, you, do you even just want to take us through quickly just what the six steps are? Absolutely, yes. Um, so I did try to use some of the verbiage that um, she sent me how used and we'll see how well I did. So when one is in full trauma and crisis mode, you see your journey, right? You have to start, you, you know that you're at the beginning. We know that when we're in trauma mode. If you practice situational awareness and get a lay of your surroundings, it doesn't have to be literal surroundings. It can be more of a um, emotional surroundings as it were, because once you're looking a little bit out from your trauma, from your crises, you can see this, you are in charge of your situation. Now, emotions, they are fickle beasts. And it doesn't matter how logical a person you are. When faced with trauma, crises, drama, our emotions are just brutal. They really are. We have to somehow shh to our emotions. Our inner critic is going to be one of the most difficult things to get around than anything else. When we can do that, or as we are doing that, we begin to believe in ourselves. And you see, as you start doing this successfully, you're able now to slide up. And it works the same way here. As you're seeing your journey, as you start to look a little bit out, then you start to realize that you're the one in charge. You take the responsibility, you start quieting the inner evil you. And when you do that, hopefully a little bit of shifting is starting to happen. Find that happy inside of you. And I used happy because flow uses happy. I usually wouldn't use happy, but I would use peace maybe. But I did use it as a nod to MC and it's what the book is saying, right? So now that you're trying to believe in yourself, you're working on embracing whatever bits of positive energy you can find, depending on the drama or the trauma or the crises, it may be very little bit, but if you can just kind of keep that ember alive, what you're doing is you're refusing to give up. And if you refuse to give up, the ember, even if the ember doesn't get bigger, it's not gonna die because you're refusing to allow it to. You're gonna keep nourishing it. And in, and in doing that, you're making that decision. So be decisive means you're making the decision to keep that little ember going. And overcoming fears 
is it in this part? Because I, I find that they go hand in hand, you know? As you're trying to keep the ember alive, you might start to question, who cares anyway? Why? Why am I keeping this ember alive? Am I keeping the wrong one alive? Okay. But if you can just make the decision, you know what? I am. I'm going to keep doing this. As you make the decision, whatever it is, and you're not, that you're not going to give up, well, you may realize that you can't keep the status quo. So now you got to start looking around. I need something new. I need more options. Well, that's what you're doing here. Even if you start saying that to yourself almost in desperation, you're still doing the search. You're looking for more options. And that pushes you here to become, be adaptable. Even if, it's, even if you don't even realize that what you're doing is being adaptable because you're just looking for another option. And in the best of lights, you're looking for another option is envisioning a new life. Because we all want a life that doesn't have whatever crises started all the way down here. So you're doing that as you step up towards step five. And as you're looking for other solutions, maybe envisioning that new life, it's where you get your setting of new goals. And if you'll notice, refuse to give up is in here again. That was actually not a typo. That is on purpose. Because, and this might be me, I'll admit to having a healthier than most dose of orneriness, but I really do believe that there's no real secret to being resilient. It's just being ornery. If you refuse to give up, you find yourself accidentally being resilient. Accidentally, you're a survivor. But it's not truly accidentally, right? Because you've been walking the steps. And whether you knew it or not, there was intention there. Because every time you make a choice to look a little out, to shush your inner critic, to believe that you can, to make a decision, to seek a different way and to set a new goal. Every time you make those decisions, you're creating a stronger foundation that allow you to be resilient so that the next time you get bumped from this all the way down to here, because it, sometimes it's just a small bump. Sometimes it's something that just, you're just free falling all the way down here. And when you're free falling, the more often that you take the little jumps, when you do that free fall, you will be able to get up. Now I can make zero promises on the time frame. All I know is that we all have it within us. And the more we walk these steps with all the smaller crises that life throws at us, the, the better prepared. And prepared is the wrong word because I, I, I'm not, I don't want to be, to belittle anyone's suffering and I don't want to belittle anyone's drama. I mean, I'm sorry, trauma. Because I don't, I don't know your traumas. I don't know your crises. But I know that we all have within our control 
the ability, even if it's just to refuse to give up, even if just out of absolute orneriness, you decide to take a step. I think we all can do it. Thanks. Thanks, Maritza. So next, we're going to go into the section of this meeting where we're going to put you into small breakout rooms so you can have an opportunity to discuss some of these ideas with other people in the group. And usually we give you a a prompt or a question. So this week, we want you to think about this model of the victim, survivor, thriver, Think about how this applies to your own life, your own situation. Um, You don't necessarily have to reveal anything personal, but maybe just some of your own thoughts about, uh, based on experiences in your life, perhaps how best to move from being a victim to being a survivor and a thriver. Anything else you want to add, Maritza, before I get the breakout room started? Nope, that's perfect. Uh, Transformational coping, that's the topic for today. Yeah. All right, so we're going to do this for about 20 minutes, and then I will see you back here in the main room. All right, I think we're all starting to come back into the main room. So now is the time for our lightning round of questions. So first, we're going to go around and get questions from anyone who wants to put a question on the table. Ideally, this is your best question of the night. It could be something from the presentation we gave, something if you read the chapter, something that came up in your discussion group, you can raise your hand in the chat function on Zoom, or also just type exclamation point in chat here uh, on Zoom, and we'll get as many questions as we can. Sometimes it's even just great to hear a bunch of different questions, get our brains working and thinking. And then as a group, we'll try to go through and answer as many questions as we can. And I will just point out, we do have a hard stop tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern time. There is another 52 Living Ideas meetup group that is about the Bhagavad Gita. So it's a, the first um, the first meetup about this topic. They're, going to discuss the introduction and chapter one. So we do need to make sure that we end on time and then you will have to switch to a different Zoom link. So just go back to the 52 Living Ideas page so you can look at the Bhagavad Gita there. All right. So anybody again who wants to start asking questions, just as I said, raise your hand or type exclamation point. Maybe our presentation was so clear. Maritza just outlined it so perfectly with all her graphs and nobody has any questions. <laughs> all right, it looks like Jeff. Shy. Okay. Jeff, I think is gonna get us started here with a question. Well, first of all, um, you know, I just wanna say thank you for, for such a um, intriguing presentation as well as, um, just all the thought that you both put into this particular um, subject that I think is, I actually think is one of the most consequential 
um, psychological subjects that um, you know that exist uh, in you know in in, in human um, lives. I, I think this is this is uh, this is on the short list, you know, of um, of things. And in our in our group, one of the things that we talked about, and I'm not quite sure what's the right way to phrase to, to frame this as a question. You know, we talked about um, is the the you know the victim uh, sort of the definition of 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 the victim is um, there's there's sort of you know a victim of of something that really doesn't have anybody's intention behind it, but you're just a victim of that in life. You know, something has happened. It could it could think of it as a genetic you know uh, you know uh, defect that causes you a certain you know physical ailment. Or, or think of it as just some accident that was really nobody's fault, you know, it just happened and you had to deal with that. And it's certainly possible to see that, that you're a victim of, of life in some way here. Um, but there's nobody to blame, you know? And then, and then there's, the vic there's, uh, there's being a victim of, for, for lack of a more precise word, sort of a predator you know, somebody, another person who has intentionally attacked or assaulted or made some decision uh, using whatever authority they had that is very consequential for one's life. And that's a bit of a different situation here with re regard to con the consideration of a uh, victim. And, and one of the people, you know, in our group was sort of considering the, the, the first one, and I was sort of considering the second one. And it's a very different orientation, even though they both can produce, you know, sort of getting stuck in, in, uh, in a kind of a victimology and affect one's sense of, uh, you know, of, of what uh, of their own, how they frame their own, the quality of their life. And maybe to the extent that they were to blame and, and you know, affect one's self-concept and self-confidence and even agency or even hope. So, it can definitely have a, you know, but the, 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 um, the second one has more opportunity to be angry at a person. Whereas the first one, you know, you could be angry at life and they're not totally unrelated, but, but these are kind of different situations. Um, so I'm not sure what the question is. I think the question is, what do you mean by victim? <laughs> you know, and, um, and, and does that matter? No, I like that. And maybe if there's even different strategies, depending on whether you're the victim of you know, accident or happenstance versus a victim of a predator or someone with a, right. a malevolent intention there. Yeah, good right. question. You know, a, a meteor falls on your head versus, you know, somebody attacks you as you're walking through the park. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Excellent question. Anybody else have questions we can add here to the list? It looks like Anton is up next. Okay. Um, I, I'm glad that I had a little bit of time to try to think of a question, but also I saw that it was silent. So I was like, okay, so I'll think of a question. <laughs> um, one thing I'll say, I, I do want to make the comment. I really like the um, one of the slides was about uh, paying attention to 
um, the experience you're having in the moment rather than the ego intentions or what the ego can get out of it. Because that's definitely one thing I've noticed myself of how I enjoy myself way more when it's not thinking about what other people will think about it or how good it will be in the or bad it will be in the eyes of others so yeah um so i really enjoy that comment but um the the question i was thinking of is is more about thriving um and i think i mean this might just be just a simple answer but like so is thriving uh like what state of being are you in when you're thriving like we're talking about the actions and, and behavior which makes sense but is that like the flow state um or i guess it's some elevated state of being that you're in that's my question yeah so what is the state of being you're in when you are thriving oh, excellent thank you anton let me see next we have a uh, lawrence to add a question here to our mix i always forget about that yeah this is my first time with the group i just found but i'm asking about the other um, weeks later, I discovered this book like 30 years ago when it came out. But anyway, um, and I'm, now I want to try to find it and reread it. But I brought up this in, in our group. I was with Anton, in fact, was, was one of the people in my group. And something you or Maritza said during the presentation made me think of this. Um, I know Colin Powell died recently, and I remember when he became like a, you know, a national figure, whenever that was. And I remember, and he grew up in the Bronx, which believe it or not, you can't tell by my speaking because I'm an actor among other things, but I started in the Bronx my first three, four years. And reason we left because the Bronx was so bad, violence and I mean, everybody, no matter where you live in America, you've heard of the Bronx and you know, it's, it was bad for many, many, many decades. Um, and the question is, I remembered being brought up when it became a figure, how is it that in this environment which is so awful and so many people you know drugs violence awful stuff that this person was able to somehow come through and become not just like what someone at our level thriving but an actual national figure regardless of any poly, you know politics party i mean just a national figure you know when he died a few weeks ago everybody of any party, you know, praised him as a great human being. And I wonder how, how, how and why he could, and others can get through that kind of environment and still thrive even beyond, you know, at the highest level. I, I love that question, even to, to just have us think about more examples of people exactly like you're describing, who've come from just really awful, situations, circumstances, environments, and yet are able to succeed and, and what it is that they've done. How are they able to do that? Yeah, and I also mentioned the Supreme Court Justice, Sonia, um, Sonia Mayer, who's also from the Bronx, by the way, and now she's, you know, Supreme Court Justice, and also from that, that world. Oh, another good example. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see. Next, we have up Jack with a question. So I don't know if this is a question or more of a, well, I guess, I guess maybe it's a agree or disagree, right? But maybe just more of an issue I had with, uh, with um, something that he had said. In the, uh, so on page 199, the second paragraph, he says, um, and this is in relation to the three factors, the 
where he talks about um, ability to cope with stress, um, one being external support available, uh, two being a person's psychological resources, and three coping strategies, right? So um, obviously he puts a lot of emphasis in terms of coping strategies, but the first two, like, you know, so in, the, in that second paragraph, he says, um, external supports by themselves are not effective in mitigating stress. They tend to help only those that can help them, that help themselves. And I, I'm thinking like, so when he's talking about external supports, only helping those that help themselves, isn't that essentially number three as well? Isn't that coping strategies? I mean, yeah, like in order to develop coping strategies, you, you're helping yourself to develop those. So, you know, um, so I don't know about that criticism. And then number two, um, he talks about psychological resources are largely outside our control. It is difficult to become much smarter or much more outgoing than one was at birth. And that I really had an issue with because it essentially saying you, you can't get any smarter than you, are, than you were when it essentially becomes like a nature versus nurture type of, of discussion. And then, but earlier on in that previous, um, in the previous, previous paragraph, he talks about personal psychological resources such as intelligence, education, right? And relevant, per I mean, he has education in there. Either a person's gonna get educated throughout their entire you know, lives or, or, you know, and then there's, different, obviously there's different spectrums of education, but I don't know. I just had a real issue with the second paragraph for, you know, a couple of different points. I just, maybe it's more of a statement than, <laughs> than, than a question, but yeah, you know, I was just kind of curious if anybody disagreed or agreed with that. Oh, thank you for sharing. Um, I'll, I'll jump in on this one really quickly and say, like, I, I found this a little bit frustrating too, like, Personally, so I, I found it a little frustrating. He, you know, he mentions external supports, but doesn't really give us many examples of exactly what he would mean by that. Um, and then, you know, in terms of psychological resources as well, I, I started reading this in terms of. I think we know now that you know, you know, there are certain psychological personality traits, at least that are inborn, and there are, let's say, aspects then of our psychology that are outside of our control. So, so I, you know, kind of saw this as he's trying to say, you know, what, what are the things that are outside of our control? Presumably that's even what he's talking about with the external supports where he doesn't really give us many examples, um, you know, versus something like transformational coping where he's going to make the point that this is something that we can develop, that this is a skill, that this is something that is within our control. Uh, but I would, I would agree that, uh, you know, that it's maybe not the best examples or you know, just a lack of, of examples of what exactly is within our control and outside of our control. But I'll put this then maybe, I'll, maybe I'll even phrase the question, um, if you think this is okay, Jack, maybe in terms of, um, you know, perhaps what is outside of our control and within our control when it comes to thinking about how we're able to cope. Does that sound like a fair way to, to yeah. attack this as a question? Sounds good. If I can and, and maybe how we can improve on, on what MC says way back here in 1990. <laughs> right, I do wanna just jump in for one quick second and um, say, mm -hmm. uh, Jack, there are so many instances in this book where I disagree with the author. I think that's okay. <laughs> and specifically in this chapter, I don't believe that the ability to make misfortune and make something good come of it is an extremely rare gift. I have issue with labeling that a gift. So, um, and that's just one page later from what you're reading and it falls under the same, it's like a similar um, disagreement that you have there. So, um, but I think that it, those types of disagreements don't take away from our ability to get a lot of good out of it still. 
why don't we even, it looks like maybe we don't have any more questions at this point. So why don't we even start with, with this particular question about thinking about, uh, you know, from our experiences, what we do think is within our control and outside of our control when it comes to coping with stress or with tragedy or trauma. Anybody wow. want to share any insights? On right. That? While, while folks um, gather their thoughts and get ready to put up an exclamation point to say their piece on this question, I'm going to chime in here for a moment. And um, what I believe is being said here by the external supports and the internal supports is that, you know, the transformational coping, it comes from within. If we think back to the last slide I showed you with the steps, everything in those steps is something you have to do. In my discussion group, we were talking about that. Like, how do we, how do we change somebody's mind? You can't. We were just saying, you know, if somebody, if you have somebody you love and you hold near and dear and they have a um, crisis that has them with a, you know, mentality where they're just hiding under the covers, if they decide to take a step out of that bed, they are making the decision to start along that path towards forward movement, away from victimization. But if you show up and you push them out of bed and you put their feet on the floor, it's not gonna have the same effects. Like it, it, with, within us is what's in our control. No matter how desperately we might want to affect those around us by enabling them to start to transition from victimization towards surviving or thriving, that's not within our control. Um, it has to come from within us. I'll add something to that. And then even just remind people, if you want to jump in on this discussion, just uh, type exclamation point in the chat here. Or again, you can just raise your, your hand here in the Zoom function. But as Maritza, as you're saying this, it makes me think when, when MC is talking about external support, it strikes me that perhaps one of the most important kinds of external support we can have is other people. As you're pointing out, like when you're in relationship with someone, you can be, that. that's maybe the most important kind, I would argue, kind of external support you can have. But then to Jack's point, I think you, know, you do have choice about your external support. You, know, you can, you know, there's hotlines you can call, you know, there's friends you can either have or make. You can, you have choice about the people. But in it's your you, life. you have you to have make to the it. choice, which is why, why I see, I see what he's saying. He's taking it as a literal, but, and while that's true, you still have to, that very first baby step, maybe step zero, you have to put forth that energy before any of those other factors can come into play. It looks like Jack has something else to say here on, on his question here, and then Evanique has something to add here to our discussion. Yeah, um, so actually, I, you know, so somewhat related what um, Maritza was saying and, and what um, you guys were talking about in the presentation about, uh, you know, MC talking about the ability to take misfortune and making something good come out of it is a very rare gift. So um, the thing with that, is, and, and then he also talked about exceptional people, right? So um, yeah, the thing with, when, when I read Git, I, I'm actually going through and reading a peak by Anders Ericsson right now, which is kind of like, he, you know, he, he dresses, um, uh, what, what is it called? 
um, deliberate practice. And it's almost like, it's like a, a parallel to flow, actually. It's really interesting. And I think like it's actually brought up in, uh, in a book, uh, Grit by An Angela Duckworth. She actually got MC and Anders Ericsson on the same stage talking about, you know, how, how these two concepts parallel. Anyway, um, so when, when I read this word gift here, right, I, I was thinking about what Anders Ericsson said about the gift is, is not um, something that's like, you know, uh, almost like a, a, a natural occurrence in certain, you know, certain exceptional individuals. The gift is really the adaptability of humans, like our ability to adapt to environment and overcome obstacles and adversity and things like that. Everybody has it, but, you know, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's an open question whether people tap into that in order to address adversity and, and overcome, you know, situations and, and things like that. So, um, so maybe the way, reason why we see people, you know, and we attribute them as exceptional is because they are tapping into that where a lot of people won't for various different reasons. Um, and that might be like, you know, I think like they talked about he, later on, he talks about uh, of all the virtues we can, we can learn, no tree is more useful, more essential for survival and more likely to improve the quality of life than the ability to transform adversity in an enjoyable um, challenge. And then, and then I think like he also talked about that they stood firm for what they believed and they didn't let opposition daunt them. So, he, so this standing firm to opposition really caught my eye because it made me think about this quote. Um, I think it was like Clayton Christian in, in The Innovator's Dilemma, but I think it was attributed to, to uh, the guy who actually came up or popularized neuroscience. And he said, uh, you can always tell the pioneers um, who the pioneers are. They're the ones who have the arrows in their backs. And um, essentially, a lot of times, this, this concept of courage and things like that, it's almost like you have to go against the status quo, go against you know, popular thought in, in certain um, different approaches. And, and personally, like, you know, just you know, really quick, I was, I was telling my group um, a, a personal battle I had about four years ago. Uh, I was morbidly obese, 325 pounds, full-blown diabetic, like 14.5 um, on, on the scale in, in order, you know, to show what level of diabetes um, you have and, and uh, had high, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, et cetera. Like it was, it was really bad. Um, and from that experience, like I actually went the opposite, you know, what kind of like what Nassim Taleb talks about in Anti-Fragile, you know, I, I had a moment of post-traumatic growth, right? Um, and like fast forward two, three years later, I've lost 150 pounds, like, you know, um, uh, no longer diabetic, didn't take any medications, went against, you know, you know, what pop popular medicine would say that take all these drugs, et cetera, et cetera. I went against that, you know, I changed my lifestyle, became very healthy, no longer high blood pressure, no longer high cholesterol. I'm like as healthy as I maybe healthier actually than I was when I was 18 years old. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, that was, you know, courageous and inspiring, et cetera, et cetera. But really it's about, you know, viewing adversity and, and essentially having, you know, kind of going against uh, maybe the things that like environmental factors. So, so in that sense, victim, you know, we were talking about victimhood and I was thinking about, you know, 
and and actually Emsky has talked about this in previous chapters about how like you know the idea of distractions in social media or you know whether it's like sugar and food or, or things like that it's almost as though like our society is set up in order to victimize or take advantage of people <laughs> whatever for monetary you know whatever right so um yeah sometimes it's about about being a pioneer and going against the status quo but anyway um i think again like the, the idea of the rare gift it's it really is like it's like what marissa is saying it, it is within all of us right we all have but it's a question of like how many people are going to tap into it and whether you know you as an individual is going to tap into that because it, it really is a superpower that we have our, our ability to adapt I want to jump in here for just a quick, quick second, if I may, please. Um, and I'm actually going to throw this slide back up here for you really quickly. Um, so this slide here, guys, Jack, you were just talking about a transformation that's a, it's physically visible and it's, it's huge. And, and I, it's a fascinating thought that this, you know, how do we, how do we deal with the victimizations set upon us from society. I, I just quickly want to say, I think it's the same answer. Because it starts with seeing your journey, with knowing your surroundings. So if we're talking about somebody who finds themselves so overweight, so as to have medical issues, they're going to first have to see a journey, right? And then realize that they have to take responsibility and quiet the inner person telling them they can't do it. Believe that they can make the change to lose the weight, refuse to give up, seek, oh, sorry guys. I didn't mean to do that. Oh, I apologize. I'm trying to be fast instead I'm screwing up. So, um, you know, and looking for alternative solutions, that's that right there, refusal to give up and refusal to accept medicine as the quick fix. Those are walking these steps here, setting new goals. So I, I see that in a path towards getting from being sick based on something physical and maybe being able to do something to fix it because you're sick because of some society overindulgement and sugar. But anyway, that I just wanted to put that out there really quickly that me personally, I, I think that any type of victimization can be viewed through this lens. Uh, thank you for indulging me, Joya. Could I just, um, just like something real quick. I, I was looking at the slide right now. It's funny because I have post-it notes um, where it's very similar to kind of the steps that you created. I created these um, on my own, but like I had uh, the be decisive as number one. It all starts with a, a thought, you know, a decision to take action. And, uh, you know, and then number two, take responsibility. I would do, I mean, I used ownership, the word ownership, but it's essentially, you know, the same thing, ownership, responsibility. Awesome, thanks. Thank you, guys. I think Evanique has something to say next in this conversation, and then Anton will be after that. Yeah, I think what I hear in this conversation 
And I think the key thing is responsibility, right? So the thing about responsibility is that there's power there. And so people think, sometimes think of responsibility as blame, but it's not that. It's a power to control what you do in a situation, no matter if you're, no matter if you caused the situation or if you didn't cause the situation to happen. Like sometimes things just happen to us and we didn't cause it. And sometimes we did cause it. And the first step I think is distinguishing if we caused it or not. And then distinguishing the type of action we want to take and how we're going to be responsible for our own lives. And that gives I think a person power and I think that helps move you out of victimhood into survivor is that you have control you can be responsible for what you do um and you know I think uh, Maritza had mentioned it earlier in the presentation you know it's the control of self when you when you're a victim you don't have control of yourself but when you're moving into survivor mode you're taking that control back and that's truly powerful and um Brene Brown and Daring Greatly, she talks about the critic, right? Which just went blank, so give me one second. And it's a quote by Theodore Roosevelt's speech, uh, Citizenship in a Republic. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether the door, I'm sorry, whether the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who can who comes short again and again, because there is no because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And I think of that and I think of this presentation is that that's what you have to do. You have to dare. I don't think it's a gift as MC explains it. I think it's daring greatly and knowing that you're going to go into the arena and you're going to get bloody, you're going to get marred, you're going to get knocked down. You know, Sylvester Stallone said, it's not how hard life hits you and knocks you down. It's how, it's how many times you get back up. And I think that's key in this. So I think the responsibility is on yourself because that's the only thing you can really control at the end of the day. And I think he talks about that in this whole chapter. It's like, you can't control the situations that happen to you. You can't control things in your outside world. You know, you could be healthy one day and, you know, find out that you have a devastating disease the next. What you can control is what type of treatment you're going to get, what type of treatment you're going to accept, how you're going to deal with it. And I think that's where the power is. You can't control what happens, but you can control how you deal with it. Thank you for sharing, Evanique. And we have Anton say one more thing about this question and then we'll we'll go to, to Jeff's question next. Okay. Yeah, I think it's um what I do here or at least when I'm taking away from this like even though there's can be differences in perspective is like um 
we're talking about and what I'm thinking about too is like a combination of the um, external as well as the internal um, like so what I would say like as far as external and definitely like if you're fortunate enough to have people that help you out uh, have a friend or more closer relationship definitely that has a lot of value it has a lot of value for me but but I do agree uh, with what one or two people were saying I, I don't know how many that like it, I say fortunate because you know it may or may not happen and um and I think you can say like the way I tend to think about things like I can say things that might encourage somebody or that might help somebody out whether or not they actually change you know does ultimately have to do with the person or whether or not there are people what I was just talking about a moment ago whether or not there's a person or people in your life that are helping you out which is definitely of great value but yeah it, then it's also like that internal what Evanique was just talking about um motivating yourself or just finding some sort of resilience you know um so yeah those are just some thoughts i have about it thank you anton uh, as, as we're talking about the, the difference between the internal and the external maybe this is a, a good time to transition it to jeff's question which was thinking about this is you know, the internal and the external but then from the perspective of what might be victimizing you whether you are just a victim of accident, genetics, happenstance, versus if you are the victim because of someone else's evil intention. Anybody have any thoughts about, and then I guess the question would be, is, is, is there something different about how you would proceed and get over victimization and get to survivor and thriver mode, depending on what kind of victim situation you're in? like Julie has some thoughts to share here with us. And again, you can just raise your hand in, in the Zoom function or type exclamation point in chat. But Julie first. Um, the 12-step program has a, a, anytime we feel victimized, to take a look at what our part in it is, because that's where our power is if we want to learn something. And there are cases where maybe we didn't do anything, in which case, take responsibility for the steps, what we're gonna, how we're going to, how we're going to deal with that. And, um, that's why Dr. Phil is very useful in the way he says, how's that working for you? Because hopefully he will get people to back up even to the point of, well, maybe my whole belief system needs to be looked at in alternative ways. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, a matter of, uh, Les Brown, for example, against all odds, um, made it to where he is today. And it's because he attributed it to being with his mom across the river with the rich houses cleaning them and, and Norman Vincent Peale's tapes were playing over, over there. And he was fed truth. You can do anything. Um, and our world is fed, is a whole world based on lies of unempowerment and blame. And, and often people have to hit their own bottom to say, maybe there's another way to look at this. In which case, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Um, so, and, and Les Brown has a community of people who, who against all odds are successful. And then you can inspire others with the, your story and show them that it's possible. And it's just possibility thinking and in a world where we put limits on everything, but uh, we can make a difference by being an example of it, you know, and sharing our truth, sharing the truth and disarm the fear and the, the lies that this world's based on. 
Uh, he uses the example of the runner who, 1968, no one had beat this record. Everyone thought it was impossible. And then Jack so-and-so made this world record. And the next year, thousands of people did it because opening your mind to possibility is, is powerful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think it's important. Yeah, I, I hear two main points here that you're sharing. I think they're both really great. First, just being open to possibility thinking instead of most people artificially put limitations on what they believe is possible. And you know, whether that's a, you know, a way that, you know, that that's a victimization that, that doesn't even come from the outsider from another person. That's, that's the way that we victimize ourselves by, by not opening ourselves up to what might actually be possible. And then I love what else you're saying here about looking to examples that you know, sometimes all it takes is that one person to finally break the record and then other people see that that's possible and that's what helps them to, to shatter that limiting belief and believe that it's possible for themselves and that's what they need to perhaps get on the stepladder that Maritza showed us to, to actually making progress and growing. Anyone else want to share some thoughts about uh, you know, maybe what it takes to, to come over victimization, depending on what the particular victim circumstance you're in? Uh, looks like Jack has something to say about this one too. So um, I really, <laughs> I don't like the word victim. I just, you know, I, I was telling these guys, uh, I was Googling, um, there's like nine different definitions for the word victim. I mean, you can like see it in, in a lot of different ways. And, and the thing is, is that like, I mean, yes, MT did use victim a couple of times in, in the chapter, but really, you know, this chapter was about more about adversity, how we faced it, right? And like uh, in the autotelic self, a summary, um, section, he says that uh, in this chapter we have seen and it demonstrated repeatedly that outside forces do not determine whether adversity will be uh, turned into enjoyment. And um, there's things that happen in people's lives, obviously, right? Um, but but the, the concept of being a victim or, um, or victimization, like any other thought that goes through our minds, is the state of mind, right? Um, what is it Shakespeare said? Uh, um, nothing is either good or bad, but make, thinking makes it so, right? And, um, and they, you know, he gave an example of this guy who's like, um, you know, he's homeless. He's like um, kind of walking, walking the earth. Uh, and he, I mean, I wouldn't agree with like his perspective on life, right? But he, you know, um, but I think like MC kind of like pointed out that, that um, what do you say? Riyadh had transformed living conditions. Most people would find unbearable into meaningful, enjoyable existence. And that is more than many people living in comfort and luxury can claim. And um, the thing is, I had issue with like, you know, a lot of things that, that the guy had said um, about like why it was that he was, you know, doing the, you know, walking the earth and being homeless and, and you know, his motivations and his thought processes, right? But, you know, that's his perspective. It's, it's fine. I, you know, but, but I mean, the reason why I bring it up is because again, it, it, like his, his thoughts, right? There's no nothing really objective about it. We all have subjective perspectives on our lives and, and different things, whatever. And so that's why, like, when when the word comes up, victim. I mean, yes, we can use it in like in terms of a legal sense, like there's a perpetrator, there's a victim, et cetera, et cetera, right? But but being identifying as a victim, I, I just don't like it. I, I think like, I, and that's just my personal view, right? I, I just think like it's better to approach things as like, okay, there's this adversity, 
there's this problem I'm facing. And I think like MC was kind of touching on this a little bit in, in some of the chapter that like, it's better to kind of look at things more logically when you can, right? And, you know, a lot of it is going to depend on reading books like this and reading, you know, a number of other self-help type of books and having that level of education. He talked about preparation, you know, being prepared and, you know, whether it's like looking at philosophies and, and whether it's stoicism or, or things like that and having that, that set of tools in order to be able to be prepared for, for the situation when it comes and then you're ready for it. And a lot of people, right, they're not going to be. Um, there's that movie Spy, I, I don't know if I've ever brought this up before, but like there's that movie Spy Games that makes me think about, you know, he's talking to his assistant. He's like, you know, when, when did, uh, when did um, Noah build the ark lattice? Before the rain, before the rain. And, and that just makes me think like, yeah, a lot of this is just like preparing for those events, right? Reading these types of books, you know, these events that we're participating in, it's about preparing for those events before they happen. And that way, you know, and then in that sense, you're not, you don't really think about yourself in terms of being a victim. You think of like, okay, this is another issue that, you know, whether it's like the potential for worst case scenario, the potential of facing your own debt, right? And like how you address that. You have a completely different view on things um, when you're prepared for them. Thank you. And well, hopefully that's even what we've started to provide here to help people. I think even just being aware of, of these concepts sometimes can help people prepare. You can start to imagine perhaps how you would react when you're faced with adverse conditions. But it looks like Katie has something to say here and then Maritza has something to say as well. Um, yeah, I liked the, the, the step in the process as well where it said be adaptable I think it's also easy to get into a victim mindset if you have like a, a one definition of success and then like I need to achieve that one thing and if I don't achieve like if I don't get a house if I don't you know this whatever it is like then you're going to be like well what is it about having a house is it like living a good life like and then you, and then like broadening like your definition of what it means to live like a good life so I think that's what helps me with um, is like learning not to get too fixed on anyone on any one thing. Yeah, I think that is a really important point not not to get fixated on just one solution, but to be open to, you know, and to also I think what you're saying as well is to do the deep work to think about you know it's not just the house it's why do you want the house, you know what what's sort of the deeper why behind a particular goal. Maritza. And why don't you close us out here, Maritza? Because we only have a okay. couple minutes left. Um, so I, I just, I would like to say, well, first, I, Katie made some fantastic points. I was chewing on those. Um, but no, I, I would like to say that the, the manner in which, for the last four slides that were presented to you, the manner in which the term victim was used is just simply to state. So a victim is someone who has been victimized. It's not, a, it's not a required state of being for everyone. And it's not a label that we're fixing to anyone. It's a noun, you know, someone who has been victimized, ergo is a victim. And it's merely used to show how one 
gets to a survival or thriving mindset. That that's kind of where it went there. I don't. I would agree that I don't know that we should start labeling anyone as victims, but all of us at some point has been victimized, whether it was by your own mind, whether it was by society, whether it was some type of a perpetrator and act, you know, an actual physical thing. Um, it could be life-shattering devastation. It could be smaller level crises. You know, I'm, I'm not here to make any judgment on, you know, anyone's suffering or crises, none of us here. I think the takeaway from this chapter is something Katie just also touched upon, the idea of maintain an open position, be willing to change your perspectives and move forward with intention. If we decide to make that first step, all the other steps are possible. It exists in, inside every one of us. I believe that with every fiber of my being, and I challenge all of you to believe it with every fiber of your being. Because imagine a world where all of us squared and then squared again, go forth and decide to believe that with everything they have. Thank you. This episode may be done, but you can always find more travel ideas and opportunities at Delve Travel. Just visit delvetravel.com. The adventure continues. Ask me why.